finally doing it. We're doing it. Logan Hatchard, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, man. Of course. Uh, you were in the Marines, right? Sure was. How long were you in the Marines for? Six years. Shit. Okay, when did you join? 2012. How old were you? I was, uh, I would have been 18. So you were fresh out of high right, school? Right out of high school, enlisted. What made you want to join the military? Uh, it was a big thing, especially my dad's side of the family. So my dad's side of the family is actually, they're from Clarksville, so like 40 minutes north. Yep. Granddad was sergeant major in the army. His He was career army. My dad joined the Air Force, got stationed up in Washington State where I was born. He met my mom, settled down. Um, and then after high school, I joined. Um, a lot of it just because I kind of wanted to do something that my family had always done. And um, I guess I was just very passionate about always wanting to do something that was uh, – People talk all the time about, you know, you join the military to serve your country. I didn't see it that way. I always saw it as, like, there's places in the world that could probably use a little help, and I want to be part of it. Yeah. So that that was my motivation behind it. Yeah, so it was a lot of it was wanting to help, but also the tradition in your family. Right. Um, so I'm guessing your whole family was super proud and super stoked. Oh, no. They were miserable. Really? Okay. Dad was cool with it. My mom, till this day, still t- tries to talk me out of joining the military. I'm like, Mom, I've been out for five years. Like, Yeah. <laughs> it's over. It's done with. But no, she had the hardest time I joined. Yeah. Um, my dad and the rest of my family, though, they were all about it. That's awesome. Um, what did you do while you were in the Marines? I was a Huey crew chief. And then, uh, so basically that means like you, you fix and ride around in helicopters as, oh, as a crew chief you kind of um you hang out of the door with a it's called a gunner's belt yeah so it straps around your chest and then anchors to the floor uh-huh and you're kind of the eyes and ears for the pilots damn okay um yeah, so you do that as well as um to put you on the 50 cal or the um gatling gun so once the uh, gal 17 and the gal 21 gal 17 is 3,000 rounds a minute of 7.62. Shit. And uh, the Gal 21 is 1,800 rounds a minute of 50 cal. Uh-huh. Yeah. But that's that's not the important part of your job. The important part is, like, knowing how to fix the helicopter. And, when shit goes down. And be able to, like I said, be the eyes and ears for the pilots. Where have you gotten to, to go? Like, where were you stationed at? I was stationed in Camp Pendleton, California for okay. the majority of it. Um going back tomorrow which i'm super excited for because i've still got tons of friends down there uh, and then um did some time in japan um what was that like incredible i love japan um nicest people in the world you don't see cops anywhere because people don't do anything they're not supposed to um there's vending machines outside that you can get like bottles of wine and beer and they don't worry about it because kids just don't buy it yeah there's no sort of id swipe or anything like that it's a culture that's very ingrained and you act like you should even when no one's watching Mm -hmm. um yeah wonderful country i love it over there what was your favorite thing about being in japan oh man probably the food i'm a huge foodie um and it's strange over there because like sushi is cheaper than chicken really because it's just readily readily available yeah it's it's everywhere everywhere um, the one thing I never did try was fugu, which is blowfish. Oh, shit. Because um, if it's not prepared right, you'll die. I think you have to apprentice for like 
five or ten years before you can serve it. And when they, they cut it up, they'll bring it to your plate. Sorry, they bring it to your table. And the chef will eat a piece in front of you before he serves it to you. To show you it's safe. To show you it's safe, yeah. Well, is it the kind of thing where you, like, instantly die? Is there... I don't know, and I'm not about to find out. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> well, what did you do? Like, did, did you have in the back of your mind that you wanted to, to move to Nashville and be a musician while you were in the military? Like, what was the experience like? Did you enjoy it, or were you like, I got to get out of here? I, I got to move on to the next chapter? Man, it was honestly like a complete accident. If you ask, like, halfway through my enlistment, my granddad was trying to give me his house, and I was like, there's no way I'm ever moving to Nashville. Um. Because my original plan was I was going to stay in San Diego. And I was married at the time. Mm-hmm. And so music was kind of, at that point, I kind of saw it as, you know, well, I'm a married guy. I probably just need to be that. And um, so I got a job in logistics working for Stone Brewery in Escondido. Because it's, you know, just hop, skip, and jump away from uh, Camp Pendleton. Mm-hmm. And um, my last two weeks, at this point, I've turned my quals in, which means that you can't do anything anymore. You can't touch a helicopter. You're pretty much just waiting your time out until you're gone. That's what everybody does on your way out. You pretty much just chill. You do your end processing and whatnot. So they offered me this job, but they wanted me to start like a week before I got out. And at this point, I'm like, I already can't do anything. So I talked to my gunny. I'm like, hey, gun's like, they want me to start this job. Can I just call you in the morning, let you know that I'm alive, and then just go to this day job he's like yeah that's totally fine my um major at the time caught wind of it and he was like ah that's a conflict of interest you have to quit your job so here i am a week away from getting out and i'm like okay i don't have a job don't know what i'm gonna do so i extended for another year um so at that point that was five years ended up pushing it to six and so i started applying for jobs pretty much all over the country one in Nashville happened to be the best paying job. I was like, well, you know, I got family out there. It's significantly cheaper than California. Um, and I can play music in my free time. So why not? Let's, let's go out to Nashville. Um, and then just kind of started going to the jams and stuff like that here and there. Like and blues jams, funk jams. Yeah, Bourbon Street was the, the big one. That's yep. where I, I cut my teeth. Um, and then just started getting call and then more calls and then it was like okay well this can really be a thing at that point um my wife at the time was really not about it went our separate ways um and then so i was still working a day job at that point and so the beginning of 2020 all within five weeks life just gave it to me raw (laughs) and fast so covid happened Got laid off from my day job, um, moved into this new apartment. I was there for five weeks. The night I unpacked my last box, the tornado came through, and everything was completely condemned. Luckily, I didn't lose anything, but I just took my instruments and my records and left everything else behind. And then my buddy John, he uh, conveniently lived in the same neighborhood that was unaffected, and his roommate was moving out that week. So I ended up moving in there. And at that point, I was like, well, I can't get any more homeless or any more divorced. <laughs> so I might as well just start playing. Yeah. And, uh, man, I had a rough go at it starting out playing too, man. Like, 
I, I love telling the story too, just because like I, I work a whole lot now and I think I've made a pretty good name for myself, man. I'll never like, I got a call for this gig at, um, I'd never played Broadway before. It was a two to six on a Tuesday in December. It was pissing down rain. Nobody was there. They were like, Hey, we forgot our bass players out of town. We'd need somebody here in like 20 minutes. So I was like, yeah, like let's do it. Didn't really know what I was getting into. Completely shit the bed on the gig. Just you didn't know any of the songs that they were calling, or oh yeah, and like I was I was too eager and just like really wanted to get into it without because at this point in time, like when I moved to Nashville, I didn't know that Broadway was a thing. I I feel like so many people move here with the goal of playing it down on Broadway. Like I want to play Broadway. I want to be a musician. I want to do this. I want to do that. I was already here, just like working a day job, not even paying attention to any of that. And man, like. It did not go over well, and I was just, like, upset and embarrassed, and I just started, like, learning a lot nonstop. And so, as rough of an experience as that was, it really just put me into gear, and, uh, yeah, it was just practice and learning constantly. Well, what, were the musicians that you played with pissed, or what did they? No, I mean, they weren't, um, (laughs) one guy's still kind of salty towards me. Really? Um, Not about that situation, but. He's like, he's like, oh, five years ago when you moved here, you're like, you didn't know anything. But I'm like, okay, cool. Well, I got better. So yeah. why are you mad? Yeah, totally. Like, was I supposed to stay sucking? Is that yeah. what you want from me? Um, but I, I, I like that whole experience because like it keeps me very grounded, and I like telling that story to new people who come to town who they have a rough gig, and I'm like, let me tell you something. Like I messed up way worse than you did and i'm doing just fine like you'll bounce back for it yeah so long as you work for work at it and don't let it get to you that's fine well uh, you know i i always ask people uh other musicians who should i have on the podcast and I, i was telling you before we started today that your name has been brought up no joke probably four or five times of people being like you should have logan on um so, I mean, your reputation is is pretty sterling, dude. I've never heard anyone say a negative thing about you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that, I think, a, a real achievement, especially as a bass player, because it's like, we're in the one position that you can't really fake. There's certain things you can do to fake, but not really. No, you can't yeah. fake. I mean, you can, as a guitar player, you can hide. You can play yeah. color tones. But, like, when it comes to being a bass player, yeah. you know it or you don't. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there's there's no hiding a bad bass player. No, no. It's like there's even some songs like like when I first started playing down um, with like the reveal on Broadway and I'm I'm still like a rookie at it. But um, it's just like they would call a song and Josh would kind of like teach it to me on stage and be like, do this, do this and do this. And I'd be like, fuck, what is that one chord change he said? I would just do a slide down the neck into whatever the next change was to cover it up. But it's like you can't really cover it up. You can fake it to a certain degree, but just like as a bass player, there's nowhere to hide. No. You are completely exposed. Like if you miss those changes, everybody knows. And like the audience might not really know. They just know something doesn't sound right. You know what I mean? They don't know it's a bass player. But uh, that's a great way for guitar players and drummers to get pissed at you. When I when I first started uh, playing, like I started playing at the blues jams, and it's interesting playing at the blues jams because it's like 
there there are some players where it's like, okay, we're doing like this one, two, or three chord song. And then every now and then you get the dudes at the Blues Jam who that's the only thing that they do that week and they're older players and they call songs that you've never fucking heard in your life and then they get mad when you don't know them. You know what I mean? Like I've had that happen. Um, I had that happen to me probably like a month ago. I went with Ian Fleming. We went to Pop Attorney's and there's this one particular dude who always jams there and he's, he's a good player. But he always like he called the um, the letter, but the Joe Cocker version, and I've never heard that version of mm-hmm. the song in my life. I know like the box tops version, the one that's like "Buy me a ticket for an aeroplane." Yeah. Um, but it has all these hits in it, and it's like I had to do t- through like two go rounds because it does the same thing over and over again before I had it down. And then it has a bridge, and he's like, yeah, by the way, it has a bridge. I'm like, what's the bridge? And he's like, we'll figure it out when we get there. And I was like, dude, I'm a bass player. That's not how that works. Yeah. Like, yes, you can tell me the chords as they're coming up, and I'll be able to follow them, but it's no guarantee I'll be able to nail them perfectly. Did he even, like, throw your numbers or anything like that? Um, No. He would turn around and look at me, and he would be pissed, but... uh. <laughs> eventually he started telling me what the changes were. I'm like, dude, you have to tell me what the changes are. Because, like, sometimes with guitar players, they have, like, a, a chord where they're playing a G in the bass. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or something weird like that. And it's like, I need to know that shit as a bass player. There's, Because there's just nowhere to go from there. But, yeah, they, they some guys, some of the old guys can be too cool for school. There's some of the old guys that are really fucking cool. Like, Terry Goose Downing, he plays in Three Bean Soup. I don't know if you know him. No. He's really cool. Don Kendrick, he plays uh, drums in that band. And they're they're the house band that night. And they're cool as shit, man. There have been times where I've died on stage at their jam. And they've always, they've never given me shit. I mean, that's how you learn, too. Yeah. It's like, you learn through struggling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember another time. This was, like, not long after I first got to Nashville. There, there was these two guys that I played with who... Like, the other version of the Blues Jam is, like, the old guys who are retired who moved to Nashville so they could play. They had, like, a career maybe as, like, a banker or a doctor or whatever. And then they moved here. It's cheaper. They moved down from up north, whatever. Um, But it's, like, they might know a song, and they'll call a song. Like, I had this one guy. He called this, uh, this song called Guilty. And it's originally, well, I think Bonnie Raitt did a cover of it. But it might have been like a James Taylor song or maybe a Randy Newman song or something like that. And dude, it's long, it's slow, and there's like nine changes in that song. Oh, I mean, if Bonnie Raitt covered it, then yeah. that's got to have loads of changes. Yeah, and I'm like, we we were on stage, there was no way. They're like, yeah, we're going to do Guilty by Bonnie Raitt. And I'm like, I don't know this song, what are the changes? But in the defense of these guys, they were really cool. The dude like profusely apologized to me after. He's like, I should have never called that song, because it's just like they'll call some some random song sometimes, and it's like you just don't fucking know it. Like it's such a, a, a oddball thing that I never heard oh, yeah. before. It's like if I get every now and then I get calls to play like Layla's or Roberts. Yeah, from somebody who doesn't know me, they just know that I'm a bass player around town, and I immediately say, you know, I'd love to. I don't know that repertoire. Yeah, I do not know that deep cut like 1920s to 1950s 
country. Yeah. That is not my wheelhouse. Yeah. And I would not be so disrespectful to take that gig and just butcher it. Well, it's like at a certain point, there's only so many hours in the day and you have to pick a direction. Right. I mean, it's like if I was getting those calls all the time, I would invest the time to start learning that stuff. Mm -hmm. But I mean, especially downtown, 90% of my gigs are all classic rock like 70s 90s country mm-hmm. and then a lot more like modern stuff mm-hmm. and so like I'm, I'm still always learning learning songs but it's just like man i really don't it, it wouldn't make any sense for me to, to invest that much time for something that i might do like once a month unless i was really passionate about sure it. absolutely no that's completely understandable what is your uh what is your process for learning a song I spend a lot of time just listening to it first. Um, try and internalize it as much as I can. Um, and then luckily, over the last several years, just like playing downtown, your ear develops so well. So I'll just chart things out in my head. Like I can, li- I don't have perfect pitch. I've got really good relative pitch though. So I, I can just listen to a song and chart it on paper as I'm listening to it. So mm-hmm. I, w- I don't know what the root note is. Then I could say, okay, here's the one on this bar. It's going to a four, the six, blah, 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 blah. And I'll do that on paper. And to me, the, the process of writing that down as I'm listening to it helps me retain it. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big part of me learning songs. Yeah, I, I feel like anytime I get uh, a gig, I always get so fucking stressed out beforehand. Even if I like know the songs that I've heard a thousand times, but actually sitting down to learn them. It's like I had take I had taken this gig a couple of weeks ago and Danny was actually there he did video for it. We we talked about it recently. But dude, it, it, it was one of the gigs where I hit you up and I was like, "Yo, do you want this gig?" because this particular week I was booked to the gills with so much stuff. Mm-hmm. And I it was overkill that I I booked this gig cuz I had to learn like 25 or 30 songs for it. I just on a normal week wouldn't have been a big deal. I did not have the time to do it. It ended up working out. I just woke up early, did it on my lunch break, whatever I had to do. Um, but it was stressing me the fuck out. But it's like basically what my process is. I uh, I pull out the you know the staff paper and I just try and make a make a chart for it real quick. Mm-hmm. Try and get the form down first and see what the changes are. And then from there, I can fiddle with what I'm actually gonna pl- play. Because it's like the first things first. I have to make sure I hit the roots. Um, and then I can do, you know, three or five or whatever to dice it up a little bit. But the, it's like you have to determine which are the songs where it's like I need to play this exact bass line and which are the songs. It's like one of the songs on the list was like Born to Run by Bruce Spring- Springsteen. Mm-hmm. There's that very specific bridge part with the hits where it's like bump, 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 bump. You have to nail that. There's no way of, of really faking that. If you're doing... I don't know. What were some of the other songs? There's like uh, uh there were some nineties ones like uh There was that song uh, Laid by James. Do you know that song? No. This bed is on fire oh, yeah, with yeah. passionate love. It was at the end of uh of one of the American Pie movies. Yeah. But that song, it's like one four five pretty much the whole time. You just have to listen for the change because it builds up. I was like, that that's one I can I can do pretty quick, like on the fly. 
So it's for me, it's determining like what's going to take me the most time to learn and what are the specific parts I need to learn and what are the songs that it's like uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know what I mean, where it's yeah. super easy. It's just, you got to just know the changes for something like that. And you, if you've heard it, then you can just kind of be like, okay, this is what the part is. But yeah, um, learning songs, I think, uh, is always something that's super stressful to me. Uh, more so on a cover gig than an artist gig, for whatever reason. I feel like with an artist gig, every artist is kind of different as far as what they're looking for. Like, I've had artists where um, the guy's like, you have to hit on the ninth fret on the uh, on the E string versus the fourth fret on the A string. Yeah. He's like, it sounds better. Um, I've known guys like that, too. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, I get that in a recording instance. That can make make a difference if you're recording, but typically for live, it's not that big big of a deal. I don't think. For some things, there is. But um, what is your process for learning songs for an artist gig? How do you determine, like, beforehand how you're going to focus your time and where you're going to spend it at? So, like, on a cover gig, I'm not as particular. Um, I mean, especially downtown. Like, it's just Broadway. Who cares? Yeah. Um, obviously, I want to... Do a good job. Do a good job. Totally. I'm not going to necessarily get all the nuances of those parts. Now, again, it depends on the song. Like, if I'm playing, like, some Kansas tunes that are super involved, mm-hmm. you have to play them note for note, otherwise it doesn't sound right. Yeah. But a lot of, like, modern country stuff where it's, like, just super simple changes. Don't, situ- don't. Yeah, situations don't, like that. Yeah. It's just, like, you play the changes, put your own feel to it whatever yeah on an artist gig i want to nail everything as close as possible Mm -hmm. um if i'm hired by somebody i want to do the song justice the way that was recorded if i'm working with somebody like brooke who i've been now her like permanent bass player so a lot of times like she'll write songs and then once we get in the room with the band and we're rehearsing and everything like that, I might throw out suggestions like, okay, let's go. Um, like, for instance, there's one song that we've been doing lately. Uh, the second verse, there's two bars of four. So I was like, hey, let's do major four, that first bar. Second bar, guitar does a minor four, and then I go to a flat six. Mm-hmm. Just because, I, it's to me, it's just more creative. And I, I really like to throw stuff like that in modern songs because most modern stuff is just boring to me yeah there's no harmonic complexity to it at all so when i get the opportunity to add stuff like that i think that's something that a lot of modern music is lacking these days i agree with that yeah it's like you might get the occasional key change but that's as fancy as it really gets um and then if you go back and listen to a lot of songs like the beatles or even some of the older motown stuff Yep. You know, they might go the last time through on the third verse. Like, Eagles, the Eagles are famous for stuff like this, too. Um, they might go, I don't know, to, like, a, a the two instead of the, the four or whatever. Take it easy. Yeah, exactly. There's only one time in that song it hits an a, a minor, and it's right after the solo in that verse. Yeah. Never happens again the rest of the song. So, okay, let me ask you this. Playing down on Broadway... How many of the bands skip that, and how many of the bands do it that you play with? If I'm playing, that's if that song gets called, you bet your ass I get on the talkback mic. I'm like, we're playing the A minor after the solo. Yeah, 
or I'll ask. Yeah. Because there's this running joke. There's the right way, the wrong way, and the Broadway. <laughs> there's so many songs that people play wrong. Yeah. And, like, to me, what's more important than playing the song right is making sure everybody's on the same page. 100%. If you're going to play it wrong, I'm going to play it wrong with you. Yeah, totally. Because otherwise, we start doing the Michael Scott, everybody's pointing fingers at Yeah, you. yeah. But there, there are certain things that... um I always like to communicate it beforehand. Like if Chattahoochee gets called, I'm like, okay, are we playing the two four bar in the solo because it flips back over on itself? Mm-hmm. Or in "Beer Never Broke My Heart," the last chorus it hits a five. A lot of people don't do that, so there's always little things like that I ask before we play the song. Yeah, just to make sure that everybody's on the same page. And I also read hands. As a bass player, learning how to read a guitar player's hands is very important. Yeah. It's an art form. It is. It's a whole skill all by itself. Yeah, it's something that I still struggle with. Like, uh, and of course, I think when you can practice with a lot of different people, that's what's most helpful. But like, I, I've been playing with Josh now for several years, like through various projects. So it's like I can kind of read his hands because he does a bunch of fucking weird voicings and shit. Because he grew Inversions up playing and stuff. Yeah, because he grew up playing bluegrass. Um, so I've been able to learn how to read him a little bit. He still leans over and he's like, that's an A and shit like that. Um, but it's, it's always funny, uh, playing with, with new people. Cause you, you definitely, it, it's like, a like reading sign language almost. Yeah. You have to get good at it. Yeah. It's something I'm not good at. I will be 100% real. Just shout the changes at me. I'll be able to follow you. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of skills you, you develop when you, like when you you play as much as I do, I probably spend like fifty to sixty hours a week on stage on a regular basis. How many gigs is that a week? Uh, pretty normal week for me is like twelve to fifteen. Damn! So you're playing three or four gigs a a day? Two or three a day. Two or three a day. Okay. Um. Yeah. And so it, that's too much. I need to start taking more time off. Are you going every day? Do you give yourself a day off? I don't, and I need to. Yeah. I had. Three weeks ago, I played 18 gigs in a week. Shit. And I was so tired, like stone sober going home from Whiskey Row closing. And I was like, I can't drive home. Like, I slept in my car in the parking garage. So I, I do not recommend playing as much as I do. Yeah. Granted, I made five grand in a week, which was pretty awesome. But I wore myself to the bone. How many songs do you think you know? Oh, dude, I, I don't know. If you, had to, if you had to take a wild guess. A few thousand. Okay. Yeah. Under 5,000 or over 5,000? Probably under. Okay. Yeah. But just like there's a, a big Dropbox file that has charts on it that everybody uses yeah. downtown. And I, I by no means know anywhere close to all of those. There's like 20,000 songs in there, isn't there? There's 4,068. Okay. Yeah. Which is a ever-growing list. Yeah. Um. But, I mean, there's plenty of songs to play that are not in that Dropbox file. There's plenty in that file that I've never even touched. Yeah. There's also... I, there's hundreds of songs that I've only ever learned on stage. I've never listened to the actual recordings of them. Mm-hmm. Like, I freaking hate whiskey glasses. I learned that song on stage and probably played it for a year before I ever listened to it. Yeah. That's a Morgan Wallen song, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. So there, there's tons of songs like that where, like, <laughs> yeah, one guy's like, hey, I don't know this song. And someone's like, oh, yeah, well, it's a 1-5-6-4 it's a and F-sharp the whole yep. time. I'm like, okay, cool. Yep. You just rock and roll with it. Jump in and learn it, and it's easy. How do you maintain 
your mental health and your body uh, doing that many gigs? Mental health is a tough one. You, re- I find I have to, for me, I have to leave town. Because if I stay in town, the temptation to say yes to a call is always there. If I leave, then it's like, you know, I get that text that says, hey, can you play whatever shift today? And I have, like, it's, it's sorry, I'm out of town. Mm-hmm. It just completely alleviates that problem for me. Um, physically, chiropractic is a huge one. Um, I mean, just having a 10-pound instrument around your neck that much, I mean, sometimes 12 hours a day, it's it, it'll wear you out. So I always have to go see a chiropractor. Um, I need to really get back in the gym. That would help a whole lot. Um yeah, that's that's the big one is like physically taking care of yourself. Because I mean, like I said, working that much, having weight on your body, you have to make sure you're doing things on the back end to kind of alleviate it. Yeah, totally. Um, massage is a great one. I go to this place over in Hermitage. Um, it's like middle aged Russian lady. Just like, she's just rough as fuck. Dude. Oh, she's super. Like I, I walked in the first time. And uh, she's like, do you want the regular or deep tissue? I'm like, I need a deep tissue massage. She goes, this will not be a pleasurable experience for you. <laughs> I was like, that's what I needed to hear. I need you just <laughs> to wear me out. Yeah. It was fantastic. Did uh, you feel 10,000 times better after? Oh, so much better. Yeah. Yeah, it can. I mean, I, I have not done it to the extent that you've done it. But just even doing like a weekend, you like for me, I, I know the problem spots on my body. It's like my hip, mm-hmm. my upper upper trap yeah yeah my my neck my shoulders all of that um one thing that that helps me it's like i have to make time to be able to do yoga if i know i'm going to be playing that's a huge one because it stretches everything out and it gets it just puts me in a better mood too like i can be in a horrible mood and i can do like a really intense 45 minutes with yoga and then jump in a like a cold shower right after and my whole attitude just changes. Oh, yeah. And, like, I've had problems with my hands in the past. Oh, if shit. If I don't, like, stretch enough. Yeah. Um, there'll be times, like, I'll, I'll start, my fingertips and my left hand will go numb. Um, I, my buddy Glenn, matter of fact, he was out for, like, six months because he had a nerve issue and um, couldn't even touch his fingers together. Damn. Had to do tons of physical therapy just from overplaying. And I I like heavy basses too. I think they, they sound better, and so that that kind of sucks because I you know I'll pick up a my buddy Jake had this uh, Sandberg bass. It was chambered ash. It was only six point two pounds. Sounded great, but to me I feel like I'm playing a toy. I'm like I mm-hmm. want something that's got some weight to it, um, which is is not good for you when you're playing that much. Yeah. Um. So you kind of have to. It's a balancing act. Figure out what gear is gonna sound good and also be easy on your back. Yeah, that's part of the reason why I got the the Mustang bass because I knew if I wanted to start playing down on Broadway more, um, I needed something lighter to be able to uh, to play. Yeah, and it's easier on the hands too since it's short scale. Short you can scale, really yeah. fly on a short scale. I love it. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, there's you have to uh, to maintain your your body. Like the the way I've always thought about music is, uh, you know, it's it's not like it's similar to having a blue collar job. Like I've always thought of it like a blue collar job. 
you're not out in the heat, like out in the field or on a street throwing an axe or a shovel or anything like that, but it does wear your body out. It does. You have to take care of it in order to keep being able to do it. And it's like someone like you, I mean, you have a background of actually working. You know what I mean? Like being in the military, that that is a legit fucking job. Yeah. Um. So it, you like you seem super disciplined to me. Did you grow up kind of like with your your kind of the background with your family being in the military? Like, was discipline something that was instilled in you at a young age? Very much so. I mean, dad was always the guy like, okay, you roll out of bed, make it, clean up after yourself. There, there, I've always been a total neat freak, and I think a lot of that had to do with dad too. Just mm-hmm. like everything was very disciplined and orderly. Uh, it wasn't ran like a military home by any means, but it was just, yeah. you know, pick up after yourself, make your bed, do your chores. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, especially nowadays, I have to schedule out, um, my practice time. So like, if I get a song list, I usually don't, I'd never cram music in. It's like, okay, wake up, have coffee, get settled, go through emails, go through my calendar, make sure I don't have any conflicting things with gigs. Um, and then usually like right at noon, that's when practice starts. And so I'll, I'll break that set list up into chunks, um, do a, f- a few songs here for 45 minutes, take a break, do the next few, um, and I'll just do that for days at a time until I feel really comfortable with the whole set list. Because uh, especially on artist gig, I'll never use charts on artist gig. Really? Interesting. Oh, never. I just, I mean, like I'm doing um, one of the outdoor whiskey jams here next week. We're doing like a long 45-minute set. And, it, you know, it's, it's a big stage. There's going to be a lot of people there. You want to be able to put on a show. No one wants to watch me on stage staring at an iPad. Yeah. Um, so it's just as much of being able to be a good performer as it is being able to play the songs right. What about for Broadway? Do you use, like, an iPad or your yeah. phone for that? Yeah. Oh, well, if I don't know the song, I'll, I'll pull it up. I've got, like, you know, a little clip. and Yeah. Um, I've got no problem using charts on Broadway. No, nobody really does. Yeah. Um, people do it all the time, especially like, even if it's not for charts, like singers use it for lyrics all the time. Oh yeah. And it's, it's not frowned upon whatsoever. Yeah. What would you say some of the necessities are for playing down on Broadway that you've learned, um, like along the way, um, as far as gear goes, as far as mentality goes, like what are your things that you know you have to do? Um, having a good phone clip or iPad, that's a must have. A charge phone as well. I keep a 10 foot charger in my gig bag <laughs> at all times. Uh-huh. Um, a set of, set of uh, in-ears. So some stages are, um, direct and ears only. Some have wedges, some have amps, some don't. It's a, a hodgepodge depending on the, on which circuit you're in. Yep. So always have in-ears on me. Um, extra cables, extra strings. Matter of fact, I put together a like emergency kit for all the bass players downtown. It's a box with my name and phone number on it. It it's in the closet upstairs Johnny Cash's and it's just got extra cables, straps, strings, um strap buttons like if you it's got 9 volt batteries. So if you ever run in, into a pinch in your downtown like I just there's a, a Facebook group Nashville Bass Hang. Just put that on there and I've got pretty good feedback because there's been a couple of guys who are like, dude, I broke a string in the middle of the gig. I was able to run over there. Thank you for saving my ass. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just a community thing. Like, 
I just put my name on there and my number. I said, hey, if anybody takes anything, just shoot me a text. Let me know what you took so I can replenish it. And then a ton of other guys came out of the woodwork. They're like, oh, I've got extra strings laying around in my house. Let me go, you know, just donate it, put it towards the cause. Yeah. So that sort of stuff is a must-have. I also always keep a bag of baby wipes in my gig bag um, just because I've seen so many people spill drinks on stage. You have to wipe your pedals off real quick or uh, wiping your cables down after the end of a show because those stages can be, like, super nasty. Yeah, oh, Sticky, yeah, dude. Bro- covered in broccoli. They're just, juice. yeah, yeah, a mixture so I, of sweat and sweat and alcohol. alcohol and so I always, like, God knows what else. wipe my cables down after a gig. Um, i trying to think of some other stuff I always keep on hand. Oh, yeah, I always travel with a um, – I always take it on the road, but it comes downtown with me, too. It's just a, like, a small guitar toolkit that's got screwdrivers um, – String clippers and Allen wrenches. That's always on me. Um, that's that's pretty much it as far as like essential stuff that you don't think about. Well, every one of the things that you have named, there has been a time where you've really needed it and not had to have it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Also, like, I don't take active bases downtown. Um, because I have been that guy caught with my pants down where my battery died halfway through a gig. And then at that point, you either have to kill time for 30 seconds after a song and change your battery. Yeah. Or you don't have one. And you're fucked. So uh, about a year and a half ago, my bass died in the middle of a gig on stage. It was like 945. Sorry, 1145. And I had to run over to Dollar General on 3rd Street. And the girl was closing up. And she's like, no, I'm not letting you in. We're closing here soon. I'm like, please, I just need a battery. And I had a briber with 20 bucks. I was like, I will give you $20 just to sell me a battery right now. And I never want to deal with that again. So yeah. all, all my bases I take downtown are all passive. Yeah. It's just one less thing to worry about. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, it's it's like you, more than probably anybody that I've had in the podcast, have really been down in the the trenches like truly down on broadway <laughs> yeah um what would you say your favorite thing about it is i mean aside from the financial aspect of it because like i've i've made a, a lot of money playing down there um but i mean it's it's just i mean a lot of times you just get to play fun music with your friends and mm-hmm. What's really cool every now and then is you, you see somebody like they're just walking by on the street and whatever song you're playing happens to be their favorite song and they come in and go ham for a minute. And that's that's really cool. Another one of my favorite things is like when you get those gigs that everybody subbed out. So you might have four or five people who show up on stage you've never met before mm-hmm. and you just everybody's killing it. That's a great feeling when like yeah. you've never met this group of people, then all of a sudden you're calling songs that everybody knows and you're just kicking ass and the room loves it. That's a great feeling. That's amazing. Yeah. No, I haven't quite been in that scenario down on Broadway yet. I feel like there's levels to it. You know what I mean? Of like where you are and pretty much you're at, you're at the, at the top. It sounds like for Broadway. Um, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I feel like you're being humble. Like, like I was telling you before, like the number one person whose name I always hear um, about playing down there, it's you. Everybody says you're the guy to talk to. No, no matter what instrument you're playing, 
your name has has come up like as far as like guitar players saying logan's good or bass players drummers whatever it is like i said you have a sterling reputation thank you man um before we started we were talking a little bit about the musicians union what has been your experience with joining how long have you been in why did you decide to join all of that uh probably about two years now maybe a little bit, little bit longer a lot of it had to do with just like like we had talked about earlier the protection of making sure that you get paid mm -hmm. uh, honestly the big one was insurance um because i do have um insurance through the va um but the union is a little bit easier to deal with <laughs> the, the va is kind then of, the government yeah yeah you have to jump through a lot of of hoops when yeah. it comes to the va yeah. um so yeah i mean that's that's the, the big thing for me um Honestly, as a Broadway guy, the union only has so many benefits, but it's when you're working more in the, as a studio musician, mm -hmm. which is a world that I'm really not in. I've done plenty of studio work, but not on that level. Those guys pretty much solely deal with payment through the union. Yeah. I mean, those are like your, you know, your Tom Bukovacs and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, like the heavy, heavy, heavy hitters. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a very coveted world too, like- if you're not in it, you're probably not going to. Yeah. Um, also, that's a world that's very quickly going away. Because, um, I mean, nowadays you can get Logic and a, a Mac and record from home. Yeah. Just yep. like that. Exactly. And yeah. Um, there was. Are you aware of like, that brief period, I think like 2019, where home recording was illegal in Nashville? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I remember seeing something something about it. That there was a a whole battle that was um, was fought for yeah. it. I think it was that that guy, uh, Liz Shaw, is that his name or I Elijah? Um, but he's he has a, he has a podcast as well. But um, Danny, do you know about this? Yeah, I think it, it is uh, Liz Shaw. I'm yeah, pretty sure. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. But, but yeah, it was. Uh, I don't think it was like that brief, though. To my understanding, I thought that for a while. I I don't know exactly. They had the to go period. to like meetings at the Capitol and shit, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, what it was is it. It all had to do with like building zonings, basically. So that's it, how they pitched it. It was right. um, residential noise curfew. I was involved with that loosely because we used to have events here, and they shut us down. Um, and that was around the time that I started kind of like investigating what was going on with, you know, those lawsuits. It didn't really apply to me, but that, that was their front for it. But what it really was is all these studios on Music Row who were just not making the money that they used to. And they had to figure out a way to try and get rid of people recording at home so they would come back to the studios well people that record at home they do it for like half the price you know what i'm saying well i mean it, when you think about it all these studios it's like they've been there for decades and these people have invested probably millions of dollars in all this analog gear in these spaces mm -hmm. i mean because that's how you used to have to record yeah it was a huge upfront investment um and nowadays that's not a thing and so i mean you had all that stuff that was yeah getting ready to go to waste which is kind of a shame and it is and granted like there is nothing better than a good studio There's for sure I, i've gotten to record at blackbird a couple of times and it, it is an amazing experience because it's just like 
people open doors for you and just you it, it, this is an exaggeration but it's like you you take a sip of water and set it down they replace it with another another water you know it's that yeah. kind of place um and it, and it and it's incredible but i think there's something to be said for a studio where the ac doesn't fucking work you know what <laughs> i mean where there's a little bit of suffering that's going on in the recording se- session yeah i like that shit that's not every single person don't get me wrong um, there's some people who are like, yeah, I want AC and couches and people like uh, feeding me grapes and shit like that. I'm not like that. I want I want some level of shared adversity while recording. Yeah, I think it's good. And I'm a huge fan of live recording. Yeah, 100 percent. When everybody's in the room together playing their parts, I've done um, a handful of recordings at uh, Welcome to 1979. Mm-hmm. And that's such a fun room to record in, like when everybody's on cans playing together yeah so to, like you're, were you recording to tape yeah recording yeah, on tape yeah and like you're getting as close as you can to just a live board tape mm-hmm. um I, I think that's such a, a fun process yeah and there's nothing to hide behind it's not like you re- totally you don't repunch and just okay let's fix this little thing here i want this tighter it's like you you get it right the first time yeah or it's like what mistakes can you live with that's the other thing when you're recording to to tape it's like well, you didn't nail it exactly as you wanted it, but it doesn't sound bad. And the whole, the rest of the take is good. Yeah. So do you want to keep it? That's like, there's an old uh, story about um, George Jones. So he did, uh, when he was recording White Lightning, I think he did like 12 takes. None of them were perfect. The last take was the closest one to perfect, but he stuttered on Slug and he goes, to Slug. Mm-hmm. And it was the closest one that they could get. So for the rest of his career, he intentionally did it live to match the recording. That's funny as fuck. Yeah. That's amazing. That's really cool. Yeah, I I like that. Well, it's like even Jimmy Page has said about Led Zeppelin. He's like, we keep the mistakes in on the re- recordings. That's what we, we did. Because it's like sometimes, uh, if unless it's egregious, uh, where you're just pl- blowing changes or something like that, if you just like... I don't know if you went to the the five where you meant to go to the the one or some shit. Sometimes it's just a happy, you know, Bob Ross, happy, happy little accident. Yeah. Um, and it ends up sounding cool or it sounds weird on the recording, but it's kind of cool, you know? Well, I mean, nowadays a lot of music is too processed and polished. Like, have you ever listened to time corrected Van Halen songs? No. They sound like shit. Really? Yeah. Everything is right on the grid. It, it loses all its character. Yeah. And like, I, I like how if you listen to some older Van Halen, that that pocket shifts to the left and the right. Mm-hmm. Sabbath was a big one with that, too. Like mm-hmm. Bill Ward's playing wasn't necessarily completely on the grid. Yeah. It shifts constantly. Yeah. And but that's what gives the song its feel. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the Black Keys have talked about that a little bit because uh I, I personally like recording to a click, even if the drummer's like, I don't want to click. I at least like having it in my ears. Right. Because it gives me that reassurance. But I get when people don't want to record with one, but it's it's also like, well, you know, like, are, is your time really that good? Because I, I don't mind if the time shifts a little bit, like you're talking about. But there's some people I feel like out there, like, you, ha- you have to have that inner metronome. Like, th- there's certain things that I've learned. Like, I-, I feel like one of my things that I'm really good at is I have great time. But uh, I've learned never drink 
uh, because if I drink while I play, my time goes out the fucking window. It doesn't matter if I'm recording, doing a rehearsal, a gig. Can't do it. I'll yeah. fuck it up. I'll start fucking up. See, I can't. I can have a drink or two on a gig. That's also one of my other rules. Like, if I'm playing with somebody for the first time, I haven't met them before. Yeah, I will never drink. Really? Yeah. I Respect. Just always want to make sure like I'm making a good impression because I mean I've seen a lot of people who get get. Oh yeah. Wasted downtown. Um. But for me, like the one thing I can't do is like I I like I, whenever I get home at like three o'clock in the morning. I have to do the exact opposite of a gig. Like, no bullshit. I just, like, dim the lights down, get on the couch, turn on Bob Ross and smoke a bowl. Yeah. And that's how I relax. Yeah. If I try and smoke while I play, my sense of time duration goes out the window. Not in the sense of, like, my pocket gets messed up, but I'll I'll feel like we're playing that one song for 20 minutes. Yeah, totally. And a four-hour gig feels like... Full nine day. years yeah it, it, so i just i do not do it some people can yeah some I'm people can those guys yeah no i i have friends that can that can play drunk they might get a little loud um but uh i have friends that can play drunk i have friends that can play high i can play i can play stoned i haven't in a long time just because i don't i don't really smoke weed anymore but um i felt like for me i i could play high uh, depends on the scenario. I don't know if I'd want to play downtown, but if I'm just playing like a gig in East Asheville, there was plenty of times where when I smoked weed, I w- was able to just be high for it. And yeah. It was fun as fuck. Um, well, dude, I know you got a gig that you got to get to. Um, how can people find you? Uh, you can find me. Uh, Instagram is probably the easiest way. It's just under Logan Hatcher base on Instagram. Fuck yeah. Uh, or on Facebook. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Where can people see you at? Do you have any regular gigs that you play? Uh, so long as I'm in town, if I'm on the road, I do Sundays, I do Whiskey Row closing. Mondays, I do Second Fiddle main stage at 11 a.m., Second Fiddle rooftop at 6 p.m. Tuesdays, I do Johnny Cash closing. Wednesdays, I do Metal Mushroom 2 to 6. Second fiddle, six to ten. Thursdays, I'm have nothing on the schedule that always changes. Friday, um, do snitch and printers alley. Saturdays is Johnny Cash closing. Hell yeah! And then wherever full else schedule, I, I get called for over the course of the week. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was definitely an education. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Keep on dreaming. See you next week. Thank you.